maybe 30 or 20 years ago, a Saudi might have said, I'm Muslim and I'm Arab and I'm Saudi. Now they might say, I'm Saudi and I'm Arab and I'm Muslim. You know, they're trying to radically refashion their country and they need help from the best experts in the world. Do you want to have your country's people be disqualified from that because of some essentially antiquated point of view about how countries work together? In recent months, it can feel like Saudi Arabia is intent on buying the world. It's bought up much of golf, sports teams, many of the globe's best soccer players to its own domestic league, and it owns huge chunks of many of the biggest companies on the planet. But Saudi Arabia is not just on a shopping spree. The once insular, oil-rich kingdom is transforming into a major diplomatic and military player, a pivotal actor in the energy transition, and looks set to host high-end cultural events like the FIFA World Cup. You know, they know that buying a football club immediately brings you a billboard into a global game that allows you to completely reposition yourself and rebrand yourself. It feels like we're entering the era of the Saudi project. But what exactly is the kingdom trying to achieve and will it succeed? Coming soon from Intelligence Squared, the Saudi project is a new podcast series seeking to answer some of these questions and more. Britain does have choices. It's not either or situation. We either indulge Mohammed bin Salman or boycott Mohammed bin Salman. There is a third choice. Search The Saudi Project wherever you get your podcasts. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. It's the Sunday debate, and today we're asking, is Chinese investment in Africa a continuation of historical oppression on the continent, or is it a win-win story of 21st century development? Our host for the debate is the director of the University China Center at Oxford University, Rana Mitter. Here's Rana with more. Hello to everyone joining us for this Intelligence Squared debate on Chinese investment is good for Africa, yes or no? And before we start our lively debate this evening, I'm going to ask something of you, our audience, to make your first vote. If you're not sure yet, then vote undecided and do cast those votes now. While we're waiting for those votes to come in, just a quick reminder of the theme that unites us for the debate tonight and why we're debating the subject at all. Over the past decade or two, it's become increasingly noticeable that China is the new power in terms of investment and opportunity on the continent of Africa, or the new danger that in some ways is undermining the independence of an autonomy of Africa's nations. It just depends which side you find more trustworthy. In other words, the arrival of a new international actor with very different values and ideas in terms of governance compared to many of the Western nations is at the heart of the way in which um, China has approached bringing investment on infrastructure, on telecommunications, and a whole variety of areas that have helped to make some of the world's fastest growing economies in Africa develop faster. And yet there are worries about what's sometimes called debt diplomacy. In other words, if the debts and loans are owed to China and they go bad, is it the case that China is a harsher creditor 
than would be the case with some of the traditional banks or international institutions from around the world. In just a moment, our two wonderful debaters, who I will introduce, are going to make their opening speeches. And then I'll chair a bit of debate, a bit of intellectual exchange between the two of them. And then the really key part, I'll be taking your questions. And then I'll invite you all to make your final vote, see if your mind has been changed or indeed made up. So please start sending in your questions to our speakers now, if there are things that are concerning you, troubling you, or rather perhaps that you want to celebrate about this subject. And I think in right coming up right now, we have the results of that first vote which you put in just a moment ago. So the first vote is for the motion, Chinese investment is good for Africa, that's 20%. And in a remarkably balanced vote so far, against the, the motion is also 20%. And we have a massive 60% of our audience undecided about this question, not undivided, but undecided. So I think for our two speakers, there is literally everything to play for in terms of winning or losing in this particular debate. So let me first introduce our speaker in favour of the motion that Chinese investment is good for Africa. And we have Ngosana Moyo. Now, Ngosana is a highly distinguished politician and economist, and that's why we're delighted that he's beaming in today from Johannesburg in South Africa to join us. He is the former vice president and a chief operating officer of the African Development Bank and a former Minister of Industry and in uh, an, an international trade from Zimbabwe. So highly qualified to give us his position on this particular question. Gosana, welcome. And could we hear from you why Chinese investment is good for Africa? Thank you, Rana. So as luck would have it, this afternoon I was on a play uh, where I had a number of Chinese core passengers with me. I, I shall not name the airline on which I flew and you will understand why. So when we landed in Johannesburg, this airline has got a protocol that has come out of the COVID era that we live in. So when we landed, they said we had to disembark row by row starting from the front and passengers should stay seated until the cabin crew has announced who can get off the plane. And the Chinese people were sitting around me did not wait for this or did not follow this instruction. They stood up uh, and they didn't follow the protocol of row by row disembarkation. And what amused me, especially ahead of this debate, was that the cabin crew were hesitant to enforce what were clearly laid down rules by the airline. They were wishy-washy about being very clear, these are the rules, you shall follow them. And it annoyed me, to be honest with you, because the protocols are very clear, but the cabin staff were not enforcing them. And it was interesting because the Chinese were passengers or guests, if you like, on the airline. The cabin staff were in charge of enforcing the airline's rules, which they were not clear whether they should or should not do the, the, that. In, in other words, they were not forceful enough to insist on compliance with the rules that are in place. So as we approach this conversation about Chinese investment, is it good for Africa or not? And I insist it is good for Africa. Let's really understand where the responsibilities lie. For any FDI, it is hosted by a country. FDI by definition is hosted by a country into which it's coming in. And the hosting country will have its protocols 
on what happens, how the investment is going to be treated. It is the responsibility of the receiving country to have clarity on what the rules and regulations, the framework for how it hosts these investments is going to be. If the investors are not compliant, then there also ought to be a framework which the hosting country will use to discipline or otherwise the non-compliant investor. So this should be very clear that there is a responsibility, firstly, of clarifying what the rules are, and secondly, enforcing compliance with those rules. And then this responsibility lies with the hosting country. That's point number one. The second point I want to bring to your attention is that Chinese investment is not focused on Africa only. Chinese investment or FDI actually is global. The Chinese invest in the US, they invest in the EU, and on the African continent, two countries I want to isolate in particular or to focus on are Rwanda and Ethiopia. The Chinese have invested in all sorts of African countries, but including those two countries. And I named these two, these four essentially, i.e. the US, EU, Rwanda, and Ethiopia, to highlight that in these jurisdictions, we see compliance with what the country has said the Chinese will do if they invest in that country. So there is clarity in these places, and the Chinese comply. And I think the last point I want to bring to your attention is that all FDI investments, no matter where they come from, especially if they are sovereign, I, I want to make that distinction because when you're talking about China, the relationship between the so-called private sector and the sovereign is so close that essentially we're talking about sovereign FDI. When it is sovereign FDI, the investor invests in the interests of the citizens from where that investment is coming from. I think, again, there is, for, in my mind, incredible clarity on this. They are there because their interests are to do with their country and their people. The counterpart or the hosting country has to have clarity on why it's welcoming that investment, what it, its interests are, what the rules are going to be, which it will insist on, which should be complied with. Don't expect the Chinese or the Americans or the Europeans to come into your country and then look after your interests rather than looking after their interests. It's like a negotiation. They are clear about what they want. The question is, are you clear about what you want and are they clear of what you want and that you've got a right to insist and ask for compliance with what you want? These are the three key issues that we're debating today. So when we consider that Chinese investment is global and in a number of jurisdictions, the, the question does not even arise. They comply because the receiving country is clear. The question in my mind, therefore, in this debate is not so much that Chinese investment is good for Africa, is whether Africa is exercising its responsibility as a hosting jurisdiction to Chinese investment and making it clear what the do's and the don'ts are. And therefore, in our mind, we should not confuse issues about who is responsible for what. The Chinese bring in capital like any other investor would do. The receiving country or host country has got a responsibility to clarify what the rules are and they insist on the enforcement of compliance with those rules. 
for me, it's as simple as that. Chinese investment is good for Africa like any other investment, but we need to be clear. They come looking after their interests and it is up to Africa to be clear about what its interests are. And then you have the frameworks to insist and enforce compliance with what is required in the Western country. Ngosara, thank you very much for an extremely clear, extremely well laid out first statement. And that idea that it is in the, or rather it's in the hands of the key uh, um, recipient rather than the lender per se, the responsibility has to lie, I think sets out that side of the argument very, very clearly. And it gives me an excellent opportunity therefore to bring in our second speaker, who's gonna speak against the motion. So Stephen Chan uh, is immensely well-known and respected in this world. Also, he is Professor of World Politics at SOAS, University of London. He has published 36 books, uh, including works on China and Africa, and he's negotiated in Beijing on the side of African delegations, including one led by the Deputy Chair of the African Union. So he is no slouch or stranger when it comes to these issues whatsoever. And he is going to now be speaking for up to eight minutes on the question or, or the, uh, the issue of why Chinese investment is not good for Africa. Stephen, welcome, and please go ahead. No, thank you very much, Rana, and thank you, Inkasana. As Inkasana was saying, it's a nuanced issue. It involves both sides coming to the table with clarity. However, the inducements on the part of China towards certain of its African partner states, if you want to call them that, can be very, very extreme. I've just come back from Zambia, I was analyzing the external debt of the country. Now, in fact, the country's in debt by the tune of 31 billion US dollars, 17 billion of that is external debt. And of that external debt, one third is owed to the Chinese. Now, Zambia's gonna have a great deal of trouble paying off this debt. They're gonna have a great deal of trouble just restructuring it. And there was a very great deal of carelessness on the part of the previous Zambian government in incurring all of these debts. But the key element here is that one-third of this external debt is owed to China and two-thirds are owed elsewhere, including, of course, to Western lenders. So there's an overall question of debt. But the question when it comes down to the Chinese is the inducements that they put forward to get countries to sign up to basically a regime of indebtedness. Now, the Chinese have been around Africa for quite a number of years now. They've had various incarnations there. They're very much there right now in a commercial and in a fiscal sense. They want to make money out of Africa while still very much hosting their activities underneath the rubric of being part of an international solidarity, helping developing countries go forward, just as they, once as a developing country, went forward. But they are everywhere. I live just across the river from the Nine Elms development here in London. I can see looming over the American embassy, a gigantic new skyscraper with basically Chinese construction hoardings all over it, looking down on the American embassy, almost as it were as a pointed reminder as to who's coming up the ladder next. So the scale of Chinese investment can be such that Western lenders can't really match what's going on. In Zambia, you have the new international airport. It was built by the Chinese. Now, in fact, there's no reason whatsoever that Zambian engineers could not have built that new international airport and its terminal. 
They could have tendered off the contracts for the Enbridges, but even those were probably within the remit and the capacity of Zambian engineers. But when it's offered to the host government as a one-stop-fits-all, we'll build you the whole thing. You don't have to worry about anything. And the collateral is the airport itself. If you don't repay the debt, then we own the airport. And they've tried this not only in Zambia, but in other countries, in Asia, for instance, and Sri Lanka. And in fact, they were in serious proximity of taking control of the Sri Lankan airport because the Sri Lankans, now going through a huge debt crisis, couldn't repay the money that was involved in building that airport. It's very, very much what are the control mechanisms in terms of Chinese sovereign investment? It comes from a variety of sources, which, as Nkosana say, all basically constitute a form of sovereign investment. But the number of Chinese banks, for instance, and other lending agencies now involved in the developing world means that it's very, very difficult to sort out who exactly is lending what to whom. It's a huge country. The number of institutions in it is greater than the number of institutions here in Europe, for instance. So sorting things out was a real problem in the case of the Zambians. But quite apart from that kind of confusion, quite apart from the collateral or the controlling nature that comes with the sovereign investment, there is indeed a non-sovereign incursion of a huge number of Chinese business people to Africa. And they come without instructions and without any kind of adequate cultural briefing as to how to behave a number of labor legislations that they've got to abide by, the kinds of codes of behavior that they've got to adopt towards their local employees. And there've been no end of things that you could only describe as elements of racial discrimination against employees and marked reluctance or inability to fit in to local conditions, ways of life, not unlike refusing to get off a plane in good order after being instructed by the hostess or the steward as to how to do that. In other words, the lack of readiness, and I think it sometimes is a willful lack of readiness on the part of a huge number of new private business people fully to adapt themselves to the regimes of labor legislation, health and safety codes, all of these kinds of things that Basically, even a developing country tries to sign up to. Zambia has signed up to every single international labor organization, safety code, for instance. Those things lead to a sour taste in the mouths of local people. So much so that in Zambia, the presence of China was an election issue. And still to this day, private entrepreneurs go off to Africa without any kind of briefing as to cultural sensitivity. This is something that China must look to. They must look to how it has a controlling interest, I mean controlling in terms of sovereign investment, but it needs also to have a very, very quiet look at itself in the way that it informs its own citizens who are going off to Africa and leaving a very bad mark when it comes to local thoughts of China. Basically, we've got, as it were, a balance sheet which is rapidly turning against investment from China being beneficial. Stephen, thank you very much indeed, again, for laying out the case very, very clearly. A whole variety of points there, uh, which uh, give us the other side of the question that uh, Ugozana put forward so fluently. And what I'd like to do, if I may, is spend a few minutes now before we bring in our 
audience uh, to just push a little bit on both of the points that all the points that both of you made and try and get it beneath the surface uh, a little bit uh, a little bit more. And Okusana, I'm going to start with you, if I may, with something that in a sense almost undermines the pres the premise of the debate, not entirely, but perhaps gives us a little another, another aspect. Because last um, December, President Xi Jinping of China appeared on the video screen to speak to a gathering, the FOCAC gathering, of major African leaders uh, who have had a long-standing connection with, uh, with China. And one of the signals he seemed to give was that if he was organizing the debate tonight, and I have to tell you he is not, he has other things on his mind at the moment, but if President Xi were organizing the debate tonight, he might change the title to, is Chinese investment in Africa good for China? Because some of the story that was going on there seemed to be actually about increasing concern about Chinese investment through often very untransparent um, institutions, notably, you know, the, the China Development Bank, in projects that really don't work out very well. And although being the president of China, he's far too polite to name names, there are projects out there, for instance, like the Kenya-Uganda High-Speed Railway Project, which seems to have sort of stalled in construction halfway through and isn't going to make any money for the Chinese, which the Chinese are cross about, but also isn't going to bring high-speed connection to that part of East Africa, which is really, really needed. Isn't that an example of the way in which actually Chinese investment in it may not be imperialist or malicious, as some people claim, but it's actually just not very good at judging where there are really good investments to be made. And the end result is you get these failed projects that nobody really benefits from. Rana, I couldn't agree with you more. In fact, I dare say that even uh, Steve Chan's argument essentially acknowledges that the responsibility has to be laid squarely on the door of African governments. He mentioned, as far as Zambia is concerned, that the previous government was irresponsible in its borrowing. So the level of indebtedness that I, as an individual, my family, my nation, can uh, 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 take on is my responsibility to calculate. It's entirely up to me. It cannot be put on the shoulders of somebody else. And I think for as long as Africa does not accept responsibility, and that's why, in fact, uh, the, the president of China framed it the way is from his perspective, as I laid it out earlier, he's looking after Chinese interests. Nothing will ever change. When the Americans go investing, when the Europeans go investing, when the Chinese go investing, when the Japanese go investing, they are looking after the interests of those countries and their citizens. But that, that's Africa, okay, on the and, other and, hand, sorry, let me just... all I'm saying is, you, if, you, if we absorb Africans for taking on the responsibility which is theirs, then this debate will never end. And like I say, actually, the Chinese are no different from anybody else. Okay, Uncle but not, not absolving them, but isn't it fair to put some responsibility on lenders for making sure they're handing out loans for projects that actually have some economic validity too? If the Americans or if the World Bank or whoever else it might be were handing out loans for projects that actually look like very poor investments, then doesn't that suggest that the lender, in this case China, should take some responsibility along with the African debtor nations? So again, if I was negotiating on the side of the Africans, what I would be looking for is what are the conditions? What happens if that debt does not perform? So as long as you look after that technically, let it hit the Chinese. If they are being careless with their money, that's their lookout. But where technically you need to be competent, 
if they are going to take charge of your assets or the assets in your country because you were incompetent at looking at the documentation, then it's your responsibility. Okay, well, let me turn from that to Stephen. And Stephen, you made a lot of really interesting points uh, as, as well. And I want to try and drill down to a couple of those as well. One of those, actually, let's stick to that question of infrastructure payment. Now, you've been pointing out that there's an awful lot of uh, Chinese money going around that isn't necessarily employing enough indigenous um, uh, people, that it's bringing in Chinese laborers, all of these sorts of things. But let me throw you a question that I, I think is still correct. And the two of you are probably the best qualified people in the world to tell me if this is no longer right. But if you went to a, you know, a British style pub quiz and were asked in the pub quiz, which is the only sub-Saharan African country whose capital city has a metro light rail system? My understanding is the correct answer is, well, what is it, Stephen? You know that? As far as I know, there isn't a, a metro system in any of them. So I'm told it's in, I'm told it's in Addis Ababa. Yes, Addis Ababa is what, is what what? Yes. Addis Ababa. So yes. that's the answer to the question. My point is that that has been built by Chinese money and Chinese investment. And it means that Ethiopia, which until the recent you know horrific civil war, was actually growing, I think, at 11% a year, also, of course, has um, long-distance high-speed rail paid for and put together by the Chinese to help boost those growth rates. That Chinese investment has had something to do with Ethiopia turning into a high-growth, high-dynamism economy. Surely that kind of case study is what one brings out when one wants to say, well, look, there are all sorts of flaws with Chinese investment, but it can produce results like this. It can. I mean, and I applaud the efforts to build the metro system in Addis Ababa. It's long overdue. It's not yet quite complete, and it will be the only one in Africa when it is complete. But what you've got in Ethiopia, and Nikosana also signaled that you've got this to an extent in Rwanda, uh, you've got it to a certain extent in Angola as well. But I can't think of too many other African countries that can negotiate with the Chinese as well as those three, and Ethiopia very much taking the lead. In fact, the previous mayor of Addis Ababa is a very good friend of mine and a highly technocratic person. He knows exactly how to negotiate, exactly how to push back in a very, very planned and articulate fashion. So having that kind of capacity really is very, very important. If you go into the frame without that kind of deep knowledge about when to push and how to push, the Chinese, like the Americans, like the British and the French, will take you for a ride. Absolutely. Now, in the case of the Chinese, it's more dangerous to a certain extent. Because as I've found in more than a dozen years of going to China to negotiate with African delegations, often the Chinese really don't know what they're talking about. And by that, I mean in terms of deep detail of the conditions involved, in terms of the politics involved, and certainly in terms of the cultural elements involved. Now, it's gotten better over the last 12 years. But when I first went there, you know, the level of knowledge was quite appalling. Now, in part, the Chinese only have themselves to blame for that. Their diplomats don't get out in the community. They're sequestered in almost like enclosed bunker fortress embassies. They're reporters, they're journalists, they're academics report along party lines. And so the dissenting voices and never ever sort of brought home to the party leadership. And in Beijing itself, you've got a division, you know, which element of the party is making the decision, which element of the government is making the decision, which banks with what kinds of party and state control apparatus are making the decisions. So you've actually got underneath this monolith called China, a great plurality that's not always well coordinated and not always well formed. 
So just as African governments by and large have got to do much more to unify themselves, the Chinese government has also got to do much more to bring its own act together. Okay, Stephen, I'm going to bring Ungozana back straight back in in just a moment, just to remind our audience that you two in a few minutes will have your chance to have your say. Get your questions in. Please do uh, type the questions in. If you want to anonymize them, that's fine. Just click the anonymous button before you press send. But do keep those questions pouring in and also do hashtag, uh, use the hashtag uh, IQ2 to let people on Twitter know what you think of the debate so far. Gusana, I think you want to come right back yes. in on the back of what Stephen said. Please yes, do. Yes, absolutely. And, and I think Stephen would admit that under normal circumstances, the scenario that is just painted, where you've got two parties coming to negotiate, and the one party has not taken the trouble to inform itself of what is going on, and the other party is more knowledgeable about the circumstances. The party that is more knowledgeable ordinarily should have the upper hand. So if that is not being uh, proven to be the case in this instance, it goes back into exactly what I've been saying. Africans are not being responsible and taking responsibility in spite of all the knowledge they have. They let people who don't know about their own space take advantage of them. How else can they? I mean, this is like, really, there is no other way of looking at this. Africans have to take responsibility and, and we must insist that it does not matter who the investor is. Africans are responsible for negotiating properly and calling on people like you, Stephen, who have got the skills and understand the other side to come and help them. There is nothing that stops them doing that. So why is it not happening? I'm, I'm going to give Stephen a brief right to reply here. Stephen, you, you do come back in. No, indeed. People are asking me, and I'm quite prepared to help, but entirely on a, a pro bono basis. But my point is that just like African governments have got to be better informed, I completely agree with you. My great surprise in Beijing was the need of the Chinese also to be better informed. So what you've got is a double disaster and both sides are not fully knowledgeable. It's not just therefore one side having a surfeit or an advantage in terms of knowledge. It's both sides having a deficit in terms of knowledge. And that can only lead to disaster. And I'm saying it's the responsibility of the Chinese. as the circle. But Stephen, I, I'm also saying, I'm saying if I was part of this negotiation, I'd be quite happy for the Chinese to come without the knowledge because it would give me the upper hand. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Because whether you're thinking about challenges big or small, let's not dress it up. 
life can be pretty stressful, so it's healthy to have a place to discuss those thoughts and share what's on your mind. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. We've heard from plenty of the biggest thinkers on psychology and wellness on this podcast, and it's clear that therapy doesn't always have to be solely about addressing some big scary trauma. It could just be a way to learn a few new coping skills and empower you to become the best version of yourself. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime with no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com intelligence today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P intelligence. Could I bring a couple of one, one, one last question in a section before we bring in our, our, our audience? Uh, Uncle Sana, could I bring up another matter which has come up in terms of some people being cautious about Chinese investment, particularly in infrastructure? So let's go back to Ethiopia, uh, which you mentioned um, uh, as well, and Addis Ababa. One of the buildings that was built you know, very much with Chinese support in Addis Ababa is the headquarters of the African Union, the major um, institution of, of, of the continent. And it was reported, I can't personally vouch for it, but it was reported quite widely that shortly after it was built, it was found that the Chinese engineers had placed devices there that made it possible to send back confidential data from the building to China. Is this the kind of thing that should be concerning African recipients of investment in that the infrastructure is not just infrastructure, it's also part of a wider security bid? potentially, by China. Uh, absolutely. And my argument is that all the nations do it. Remember remember the, the uh, embarrassment of the Americans finding, I mean, of the knowledge being made public that the Americans had been snooping on Angela Merkel, remember? So what I'm arguing is that all nations look after their interests and they will do whatever it takes to look after their interests. The, the, the difference, Angosana, is that I don't think the Americans made Angela Merkel pay for it, though. No, no, no. But, but, they were spying no, on her, but, but they didn't but, charge her for the privilege. But from an intelligence point of view, that will happen. And Africans ought to be aware of this. We could have raised the money from the African continent, from African corporates to build that thing. And why didn't we? And all I'm saying is, I hear you and I agree with you, but it's our responsibility. Well, what's the answer? What's it's the answer to that question, Ogosana? What's the answer our to your own question? It's our responsibility. So, so you think, in fact, that basically Ethiopia's government the afternoon didn't didn't care about the security aspects because the Chinese bid was cheaper? Is that the reason? Look at Ethiopia looking after its own interests. They've managed the Chinese. They've not let them do that to them. It's a nation. Okay. Well, a brief comeback from Stephen before we, we go to, to Q&A in that case. Go ahead, Stephen. Well, in fact, we're remarkably sort of agreed on this, that Africans have got to do more. The Chinese also, as I've said, have got to do more. But this requires capacity on both sides. And what you've got in the case of Ethiopia is really quite outstanding capacity. In other words, it's not just developing its infrastructure, it's developing its wherewithal in terms of intelligence gathering, and in terms of using that wisely for policy purposes. In other words, it's rapidly, notwithstanding the terrible war that's going on right now, in many aspects becoming an extremely mature government. 
And that's not yet replicated in the development ethos in many, many African countries. Great. Well, look, Stephen and Gosana, you've given us tremendous amounts to think about. And indeed, our audience have been thinking very hard and sending in lots and lots of really interesting questions. So I'm going to now transmit those to the two of you and direct them. Some of them are for both of you and some of them are for one more than the other. So let's start with actually two related questions. But I think that they're intended first for Ankosana, if I may. So, first of all, um, our um, uh, anonymized, uh, yes, no, our anonymized questioner says, great debate. So thanks very much, gentlemen. You're doing extremely good work there. But does Dr. Moyo not think that as the Chinese are much more powerful than the Africans, they inevitably call the shots when it comes to the terms of the investments as agreed on? And let me link that to another question that's come in from another one of our audience, which is on a similar thought which is, question for Dr. Moyo, does the controlling nature of Chinese investment not lead to a loss of foreign policy for the receiving nation? For instance, the loss of independent voting in the United Nations. And does Chinese investment effectively not make these African nations puppet states of China in the UN when it comes to, to votes? So let me throw this both to you, Uncle Sana. Yes, absolutely. So I think the questioner is right to point to more powerful, but I think we need to be careful. More powerful, yes, China is stronger, it's got a bigger economy and all of those things. But I would challenge the questioner to give me one example where the Chinese have gone in and actually forced anybody to take an investment from them. Forced as opposed to either persuaded, whatever the case may be, because the issue of powerful only comes into play if it's forced on the one side and the recipient has got no right of refusal, so to speak. So if I'm being persuaded and my ignorance and my greed are essentially the ingredients which are being used to make me take on this thing which I shouldn't be taking on, then it's not a question of power. I think as Stephen rightly said, it's more a question of capacity on the one side. Sadly, I think there is also greed by the people running the continent on the other. Greed and lack of capacity. Both of those things are the responsibility of the African side. What about that second question, Ungusada, uh, uh, about the danger of African nations, indeed countries elsewhere in the world, who find themselves essentially having to vote the correct way in the United Nations to keep their Chinese investments flowing? Is that not a danger? It, it is a danger, but it's the Africans mortgaging their rights. <laughs> they are mortgaging their rights. They are not being forced to do it. But you're right, the outcome is that these people have sold their soul to the Chinese and therefore they do their bidding. The responsibility still comes back to the Africans. Well, Stephen, could I throw a different question from our audience to you? Because I think this one is, 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 is aimed more, more at you. And it's a very thoughtful one, actually. That The question is, could the benefit to Africa from Chinese investment be more felt, be felt more strongly in coming generations even if it's not apparent now. And I'd add to that, you know, some of the comments you made in your initial statement sound a bit like teething problems. You know, lots of Chinese traders coming to various African countries, culturally insensitive, not speaking local languages. But that's the kind of thing that could change over time as people become more embedded in the community. It's not necessarily a fundamental argument against the idea that over the long term, as our questioner says, this could actually be a rather productive investment for, for China. Isn't that part of the case? It could be. And it was the interesting spectacle of successive Chinese generations. And there's at least three generations of Chinese migration now to Africa. The older generations, because of an absence of effort on the part of their embassies and government, are in fact giving tutorial lessons to the newer migrants. 
about how to fit in with the local environment. So it's a very, very welcoming uh, sign as far as I'm concerned. But yes, and the Chinese do have very good ideas. I mean, we're still building schools. They're offering to build universities, for instance, looking to the future. So all kinds of pros and cons here. Yes, there's the real possibility of these things having a very, very good future outcome. My point right now is that all kinds of clumsiness goes into the present state of things. And I do applaud the Chinese for not having a condescending attitude. Who else would build an opera house for Gabon, for instance? This is a serious realization of Africans having cosmopolitan, highly cultured, in Western terms, taste. We would never think of that. However, this is very, very much something which builds towards a future relationship, builds towards a future growing cosmopolitanism in Africa. My point is that right now you've actually got a side which is sometimes even distasteful coming out in the relationships between the two countries or the two continents. No, really, really good point, uh, uh, Stephen. Just a, a reminder, actually, to everyone that still please do send in questions. We've got quite a bit of time. We've got lots in our feed already, but we'd love to have even uh, even more. Could I use that thought from Stephen to ask Ugosana and then Stephen again, both of you, um, a question that's also come in from one of our um, audience, which is, what do ordinary Africans think about the Chinese presence? And that's a huge question because there are, you know, 50 nations in Africa and you have people who are rich, people who are poor, people in the middle, the cosmopolitan middle class who live in great cities like, you know, Joburg, where Nkosana is sitting right now, or who are um, in growing uh, metropolises like Addis Ababa, but also people living in terrible sites of warfare as well, which, of course, is also seizing large parts of Ethiopia and, and central parts of Africa. So there's no one story. But having said that, we have limited time and a lot of interest. So do give perhaps a sketch of where you see opinions lying with today's perhaps younger Africans about the Chinese presence. Ogosana, can I throw that back to you first? Yeah. You're right, Rana, to point out that, in fact, it's a very broad question. And I'm going to give you an answer which clearly conforms to what I'm aware of and what I've come across. Ordinarily, what you'll find is that the elites on the African continent who are the beneficiaries of these funny transactions are the ones who are happy in selling their souls and their countries. The ordinary people who are interacting with the Chinese at ground level are mostly unhappy. And if you look at what has happened in, in Zambia, for instance, where there was a reaction against what is being going on, that reaction is lower down in the communities. So there, there is almost like a stratified reaction. The upper echelons are selling the countries to the Chinese for very little money, actually. And the ordinary people are having to live with the consequences of this, unhappy with it. And I think it also refers to your previous question. I think before there is a transition to almost like an accommodation by both sides, unfortunately, I think there's going to be a lot of pain to transition. We are creating a society that's going to be very unhappy with what's going on. And there will be strife and tension before we transition to, hopefully, to something that will be more accommodating on both sides. Thank you, Hassan. A very thoughtful response there. Stephen, again, this question, you know, the huge unanswerable question, but try and drill down a bit into it. What do Africans, perhaps younger Africans, middle-class Africans, those cosmopolitans who are being mentioned by, by you earlier, think about the Chinese presence? 
I think it's very, there's sometimes real resentment. At other times, there's a real willingness to try to learn how to play the new game. So the increase in interest in taking Chinese language courses, for instance, is really very, very genuine. And a growing number of African students are signing up for university education opportunities in China itself, thinking this will stand them in good stead for the brave new world of the very, very near future. So that's very much in terms of educated and largely urban young people. In terms of rural young people, they do acknowledge that a lot of the Chinese agricultural projects are very, very much their benefit in the long term. But it's also very frustrating because in order to benefit from what they're learning in terms of new agricultural techniques, they need to have access to materials, inputs that their own governments are not making available. So the development package has got to be much more coordinated, both between the Chinese donors and the host government. That kind of joined up writing, not only within individual countries, but between China and African governments, that's yet to come. And that's going to continue to give distress to young people. Could I add one question that comes from that? It hasn't been specifically asked um, in the question answer that we've had, but I think it actually follows quite um, significantly, particularly thinking about young people and the next generation. Uncle Sana, what do you think the specific effects are of Chinese investment, particularly in areas like energy, when it comes to climate change? Because many parts of Africa are going to be the most affected early on by the shifts that are happening now in climate change. What is China's role on the continent in that context, would you say? Firstly, I think what we have to realise, Rana, is that my understanding anyway, please correct me if I'm wrong, that the Chinese put a lot of emphasis on the host country or host region being responsible for making the rules of, of engagement. So they don't take on that responsibility. They say, you, the recipient, need to have clarity on what you want and how you want it. And when you look at, I think, the transitional management of the transition within China itself, managing the climate change issues, I think the Chinese are very clear that they will take their time because the transition is quite problematic, costly, and so on. So they are not taking on that responsibility. It is, again, it kind of consistent with my argument. The attitude they take is that it is for Africa to make the decision on what is going to work for it and what is not going to work for it. They are not taking on that responsibility. They are saying, you, the worst country or the worst continent, you decide what do you want. How do you want it? But many of the things that will affect Africa, many other parts of the world in terms of climate change, are not things wholly in the control of African nations because African consumption is still very low per capita compared to much of Asia and Europe. And much of that, uh, that consumption is happening much more quickly within China itself as one of the world's fastest growing economies, at least it was until the, the pandemic. Doesn't that put some responsibility on China to actually make sure its investments serve the cause of mitigating climate change in a part of the world like Africa, where it seeks to have a role. Yeah, but as far as climate change is concerned, Rana, it's a global issue. And in fact, it's a good way you framed it. When you look at a world fora, how are the Chinese being treated? or are, are, How are they taking their responsibilities on the management of climate change? I think they are being laggards, actually, to be honest with you. They are saying, you know what? We're going to deal with our circumstances in a manner that is appropriate for us. We're not going to have it in, imposed by anybody else. Yes, we agree in the, with the concept of the general direction of travel, 
but we're going to do it at our own rate. That's what essentially they're saying. So this is not an African issue. That's a global problem. Understood. Kusana, could I throw in a question that's come right in from one of our audience that's directed specifically to you? So yep, I'll just sure. read it out if I, if I may. We'd love to have your answer. What about the effects of Chinese investment on good governance in Africa? And this question goes on to explain what she or he means. It's, a, uh, it's that Chinese aid, investment and trade is popular in Africa because it carries no conditions related to good governance, human rights record and promotion of democratic values as Western alternatives do require. This results in impunity for poor governance and routine human rights abuses. So he's thinking of Sudan and uh, Darfur and uh, so so forth. Um, I mean, it's obviously, it's, it's an accusation that's often made. You're very well placed to answer it. What do you think? Absolutely understood and agreed, except I don't put the responsibility on the Chinese. The responsibility is what happens on the African continent is our responsibility. To be honest with you, if you wanted to be blunt on this issue, where Africa finds itself today, when you look at the, the uh, journey of the journey traveled, it's not because of China. We are where we are today because of the Western world, not because of China. It doesn't mean that the Chinese are doing the right things either. But until we get it into our heads that we are responsible for what happens on our continent, we're going to stay and probably the direction of travel will continue to be the wrong one. We have to take responsibility irrespective of who we are engaging with. The West, for as long as we've got the definition of a nation state, the way it is at the moment, countries look after their interests and their citizens, not after the next door citizens. It is our responsibility as Africans to understand, irrespective of who we're dealing with, what is good for us is going to be decided by us. And we must take responsibility for it. Very well put. I'm going to just put a couple of notices in here to our audience as we go on. We've still got a few minutes more for questions, so please do keep them coming in through the Q&A system. Anonymize them if you like. Love to put them to our speakers. You may have noticed that Stephen has briefly dropped out. I think it's just a tech issue, but I'm delighted that we still have Uncle Sana here in conversation. He won't mind me quizzing him a bit more because there's so many interesting things that we can explore. While we're waiting for Stephen to come back, Uncle Sana, a question that I have, which relates perhaps more to wider cultural... Sorry, wider Chinese influence is in terms of culture, because sometimes people argue that China is a new imperial power in Africa. And I think there's a lot of debate about that. Many would agree, others would disagree. But what strikes me about previous empires across the continent of Africa, the European empires, is that they have produced, for good or bad, really interesting cultural mixtures. You know, the, the culture of of, of Portugal, which has shaped uh, what has now emerged in terms of music and cuisine and so forth in a country like Angola, for instance. And of course, South Africa, where you're sitting now, is a country that has suffered brutally from colonialism, but also has a tremendous number of cultural mixes within the society as well, as shown by large numbers of languages, monuments, and, and so forth. Do you see any signs that what's now more than a decade of Chinese presence in any parts of Africa is producing cultural effects as opposed to simply economic investment. And I'll give you one quick example off the top of my head I've heard about. You mentioned Rwanda. I hear that Chinese TV dramas with subtitles are very popular these days on Rwandan television. Uh, I don't know if there are kind of more examples or whether that's just a sort of one-off. Well, you see, I, Rana, I, I suppose I've got a, a very different take on this one. I think the elites on the African continent need to pay attention to the majority of their people. So what you're describing, whether it's coming from the West or from China, only affects the elites. And we are not creating 
the center of gravity and taking the majority of our people with us. And Africa is what going to make headway in terms of development. Once it understands that we have to link to where the mass of the people are and they take them with us as opposed to the elites separating themselves and making themselves global and leaving their people behind. That's not going to do Africa any good. So yes, it could be Western culture or Chinese culture. How, does, how deep does it go? It's, it's almost skin deep. It's only the elites who are benefiting from this. So we, people who've got exposure, if I may call it that, need to start, start paying attention to the majority of our people and trying to get them to come on board in a manner and pace that they can digest so that our communities move ahead. At the moment, we're not doing that. The majority of our communities are being left behind. So the elites are falling into a seductive approach which is not helping our continent and our societies. Is this universally true across the continent of Africa, uh, Kusana? Because, you know, as we've said over and over again, and we have to keep reminding people, Africa is 50 countries and they have very different systems of governance, very different economic situations, very different resources. Would you say, you know, putting a bit of nuance into this, that there are high points and low points across the continent when it comes to good engagement with China and perhaps less good engagement with China? Well, I, I think your question has been framed more broadly in the sense of foreign influence, which is skin deep, if you like, where the elites are running away and leaving their people behind. I would say the Maghreb, generally speaking, are much more connected as societies. I think sub-Saharan Africa, the elites are moving away and leaving the mass of their people behind. So I think we need, really need to be careful. If we're going to build stability on the continent, we need to pay more attention to taking the majority of our people, call it development if you like, whatever it looks like, if it's only going to be skin deep and taking only the elites along, and to whether it's Chinese culture or European culture, whatever, this is not sustainable. We need to start paying attention to deepening the roots and taking the major part of our communities with us. Only then will what we create be sustainable. Thanks very much indeed. And um, Onkosana, I'm afraid I do have to report that Stephen's technology gave out. He obviously should have used um, some kind of uh, the same uh, Chinese communications that were present in Africa, which might have been more efficient, but he's on some sort of system uh, in, uh, in, instead that hasn't worked that way. What I'm going to do, therefore, is just very briefly for about 30 seconds, summarize Stephen's arguments for the audience again, as I understood them. I hope that's fair. And then I'm going to call on you, uh, if I may, to have the last word before we have our, our vote. So just a reminder that the key points really that Stephen was, uh, were, was making, and he made uh, quite a few really excellent points, was that debt dependency was a particular problem because he argued that China was more inclined essentially than other uh, similar sorts of lenders to really be keen to say, if you don't pay, we take it away. So it, they're, they're harsher lenders to deal with. That was part of your argument. There was an argument also about sort of one model fitting all, a big kind of idea that you basically bring out your infrastructure. You don't ask too many questions about the specifics of the locality you're going to. And that leads to cultural insensitivity, which means bad behavior, whether it's on the part of big uh, investment corporations or relatively smaller traders. And during the discussion, there were also these other arguments about security, the question of whether or not accepting the investment necessarily means that you're signing up to electronic telecommunications and other systems, particularly as artificial intelligence becomes more of an issue 
and something that China is pioneering in future years, which may or may not make you as a country more vulnerable to essentially um, Chinese security and intelligence capabilities. Again, a debate still very much in the making. So I hope I haven't misrepresented what Stephen had to say there, but I'd like to now call, if I may, for his last minute or two, Uncle Sana to come back and give us that final concise case why Chinese investment in the end is good for Africa. Please. My key argument is that it does not matter where the investment is coming from, what we call FDI. It does not matter where it's coming from. The hosting country is the responsibility of laying out the rules of engagement. You have to lay out the rules and have incredible clarity on what investments you're going to accept from outside, from the, the foreign investors or would-be investors, and they take ownership of how that is done, which sectors is done in, and what the rules are going to be. That responsibility cannot be given to somebody else. Each country and each region is going to take on and accept that responsibility. I dare say when you look at history, the African continent is where it is not because of the Chinese. The Chinese in many ways are almost like the, la the latest comers attempting to abuse Africa the same way that has been abused before. And if we've not learned from previous experiences that ultimately it is our responsibility, then really our experiences have been wasted because you cannot give that responsibility to somebody else. We have to take on that responsibility fully and say how investment is done on the continent is going to be how we want it done on the continent. We are the decision makers and accept the responsibility. And when it goes wrong, we must look at what we did wrong, not what someone else did wrong. They are going to try and take advantage because ultimately, what are they doing on the African continent? They are investing in order to get a return and take the return back to China. So it's up to us to make sure that that engagement is balanced and that the benefits, when we look at it, are going to be shared in an equitable or fair way. Clearly, as investors, they want to return. But if we are allowing them to come and abuse our continent, we can't say they are responsible. We are responsible. We are responsible in the end. That's at the heart of the very clear argument you're making for us in this debate tonight, Uncle Sana. We really thank you for that. And now, our audience, it is time for you to get your fingers working to make your final vote on the motion, Chinese investment is good for Africa. Please vote for the motion, for if you think that the investment is good for Africa, you'd like to support Ulgasana's uh, side, or against if you think that Chinese investment is not good for Africa, which is Stephen's side. Uh, or if you still think you're undecided after our friendly but very lively debate, then you can vote that way, but we hope you'll take a side one way or the other. And while we're waiting for that to come together, we'll just make sure that... Um, Everything is coming together on that uh, on that side. Um, Uncle Sana, I'm just saying you're, you're sitting in South Africa at the moment. Is it fair to say that South Africa specifically is a country that's thinking hard about its relationship with China at the moment, how it can make best use of that kind of responsibility that you were talking about? Is that a debate in South African politics? No, not that I'm aware of, but South Africa, I think, has got more capacity to hopefully deal with that. But as you, I'm sure, are aware, it's also got its own internal issues that it needs to get over in order to be able to manage the interaction between itself as a country and external would-be partners. So 
But I think they've got more capacity to structure any of these uh, things more properly than the rest of the continent in many ways. And could you speak a little bit about Zimbabwe, of course, a country you know exceptionally well. What is the situation in terms of the relationship with China, Chinese investment, and how that's viewed by the government and the public? My, you see, I've traveled right through the country and I've seen the kind of environmental disasters that are happening in the country in the mining sector, where I think a lot of Chinese operators are not complying with any environmental requirements whatsoever. And the administration is letting them get away with it. Why? Because a lot of our own people are in collusion with the Chinese in letting these things happen, which should not be happening. So again, I put the emphasis in my humble opinion on us. The Chinese will not be able to do it if we didn't allow them to do it. So it can, I mean, you know what? In any situation where there is a negotiation, you're only going ever to get a good result if both sides have got clarity that their interests are for themselves to look after. And they're going to negotiate and be prepared to walk away from a transaction that does, does not come across as being fair to their side. You can't expect the people you are negotiating with to both look after their interests and your interests. It just does not work that way. It's our responsibility. Is there any other major non-Western um, entity or lender that you think, apart from China, might have a future role in Africa? I'm thinking about Japan, Turkey, India, all of which are Asian countries or part Asian countries that have expressed an interest in more global reach. Would African governments or African economists or African investors really take any of those countries seriously in terms of rivaling China's role? Well, the Japanese are on the continent. I, I dare say my, my attitude is that the Japanese are in Africa to look after Japanese interests. That's the same way that the Chinese are. Yes, they will be, you know, the same way that the Japanese and the Chinese are not the same people. The Singaporeans and the Chinese are not the same people. Just like the Germans and the French and the Brits and the Americans are not the same people. There will be nuances and differences in the approach. But ultimately, anybody who comes into Africa from outside as an investor is looking after their interests. And what you need is capacity on the African side to balance that encounter and come up with an arrangement or agreement that looks after both interests. It cannot be done from the other side. It, it has to be done from the African side. Angazana, thank you so much. That's brilliantly put. And I also have to say that our, our votes have come in. And the one thing I can say is that things have really shifted during the debate. And I'm glad to say that very few of our audience are leaving it undecided. But I'm not going to take three seconds before I tell you what they've decided. Just a reminder, this is how you, our audience, voted in the first vote at the start of the event. It was very even, remember. 20% were in favour, 20% against, and 60% undecided, the vast majority of the audience. We've now had a massive shift. And in favour of the motion that in Chinese investment is good for Africa, we have 37%. But against the motion, I have to say, uh, is 57%, and only 6% are undecided. So what I think is fair to say is that a large number, a significant number, have voted in each direction. Very few people now are left with an indifferent view of it. And it shows that both of our brilliant speakers have given a really clear account of this really important issue. And at least you've made people make up their minds. And that is a really, really important result, I think. 
So I am going to, for the final time, thank our two brilliant speakers, Uncle Sana Moya and also Stephen Chan, who sadly dropped out a little earlier, but gave us a tremendous amount to think about. I'd like to thank you, our audience, and also the team at Intelligence Square.